morning, Jericho Road fam. <laughs> the youth will not be dismissed uh, because I'm down here. Um, but as Pastor Sam uh, said in that intro video, I get to have the privilege of launching us into a new series here on the book of First John. And it's going to be this awesome sermon series where we go through the book literally line by line. And, you know, there are sermons that are, you know, topical sermons, and there are sermons that go line by line. And which ones are better? Yes. Sometimes it's just great to do a topical sermon, and then sometimes it's just really great to do a line by line sermon. Now, this book, First John, it only has five chapters, just five, and they're short chapters, and yet it's still going to take us three months to get through this book. That's what happens when you take God's word and you want to go through it line by line, it is incredibly dense. And even then, you can read a book of the Bible a couple months or years later, you revisit that same book, and do you ever see, like, you see things that you didn't see before? The Bible's like this gold mine. Like, you can keep digging and digging, and you'll still find gold nuggets. It'll never exhaust itself. Now, I really want to prepare you to get as much of these gold nuggets as you possibly can. So I'm going to ask my favor at the beginning of the sermon instead of the end of the sermon. And my favor is simply this. It's really easy. Just read the book. Read First John. And I would encourage you, just, just read it once a week for the next 12 weeks. And like I said, it's only five short chapters. I promise you, it takes you longer to check your Instagram and your Facebook than it does for you to read this letter. Okay? And, the re- and it's just not homework for the sake of homework. This is actually for your benefit because it is a letter. Okay? Who here has ever received a letter before? Okay? When you receive a letter, do you just read the middle or just bits and pieces and then take things out of context? Like When you receive a letter, you read the whole thing. And just to kind of illustrate this, sure, really quick story with you. When I graduated high school, I was very worried about how I was going to pay for college. Now, I only applied to one school, University of Arizona, okay? and uh, I got my acceptance letter. And it was like, awesome, got my acceptance letter, but now the worry set in. How am I going to pay for school? Now, I just happened to be the kind of high school kid that I wanted to make sure that my parents didn't pay for my education. I wanted to be that son who was able to say, I didn't leave it to my parents to pay for my college. I paid for my own college. I figured it out on my own. So my plan was to just go into ROTC. Join ROTC. Okay, I'll have to join the military for four or five years, but at least my college education would get paid for. And I'm about to join until I finish reading the rest of my acceptance letter. And at the end of the letter, it says, congratulations, you have been given a full ride. Can you imagine <laughs> what would have happened to Jimmy Davis had he not finished reading the rest of that letter? <laughs> so please, this is not homework for the sake of homework. Read the letter. Just say, hey, it's Sunday. Sunday's coming up. Uh, let's read it in the car, even, on our way to church. Just read the letter once uh, every week for the next 12 weeks, and you will uh, receive a great benefit. Now, before we dive into 1 John, it's very important for me to kind of tell you what is the purpose of the letter? Why does John write this letter? And in order to teach you 
or show you the purpose of this letter, we're going to get to play a game. Who loves games? And there's a prize involved. So what everyone's going to do is everyone's going to stand up. We're going to stand up. I'm going to start showing you a series of pictures, okay? Now, it is so awesome with technology and software programs. We can use this thing called Photoshop, and we can create the most amazing pictures. And sometimes they're so amazing, you can't tell if they are real or fake, okay? So we're going to, I'm going to show you some pictures, and all you have to determine is if it's real or if it's fake. And if you get it right, keep standing up, and if you get it wrong, have a seat. Okay, it's Scout's honor here, okay? God's watching. All right, let's, uh, let's go with the first one, Susan. All right, real or fake? Real. Go for it, Susan. Uh. All right, let's, let's uh, keep, it, keep it moving here. What about this one? All right, let's go. <laughs> Ooh, what about this one? All right, is there how many people standing? Two? Is it Kevin and uh, Ellison, I think. <laughs> Who's it gonna be? <laughs> is Kevin the winner? All right, Kevin, come up here. Here, get, claim your prize, Kevin. Claim your prize. Good job. You can't fool Kevin. If you guys ever need help with any counterfeit money, please see him, and he will tell you. All right, so you can finish off the rest of the pictures if you want, uh, Susan. Um, and as she does, so why do I play this game with you, real or fake? Okay, it's because you and I, we live in a culture. Don't we live in a culture today where it is very confusing? It's hard to know what is real and what is fake. Now, my father, he loves the news. Yeah, that's scroll one. My father, he absolutely loves the news, and he always tells me, Jimmy, you need to watch the news. And I would watch the news, and I know it's important to watch the news, but my problem is, who do I trust? Which news station is telling the truth, or which one is just spinning their own personal bias? I don't even have a way of telling what's true because of how confusing our culture is. Digital scams, right? Digital scams happen all the time. There's identity theft. You know, we run political campaigns, and there are, like, people running who give false promises and fake promises, right, just to get elected. Like, don't we live in a world today that is always confusing, and we're always left confused? We don't know what's real and what's not real, okay? That is exactly the situation of John right now, okay? Exactly the situation of John right now. So, John, this letter of John, it's written literally 60 years after Jesus' death, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. 60 years. And you can open your Bibles and you read 60 years, and you read 60 years and you think it's not a long time, right? You re read it, 60 years is not a long time. But 60 years, can't a lot change in the course of 60 years? A lot can change in 60 years. In these 60 years, 10 out of the 12 apostles, okay, they've all been murdered for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, including the apostle Paul, okay? Just 20 years before the letter is written, do you know that the city of Jerusalem is completely destroyed, okay? Rome has it up to here, 
with the Jews. And they said, we've reached our point. We've reached it. You've hit the red button. Now we're going to nuke you. And they completely destroyed Jerusalem, including the holy temple, God's temple. It's completely destroyed. And you have emperors Nero and Domitian. And what are they doing? They're gathering all these Christians, okay? And they're making them into fire torches. Like they will uh, put them on a, on a wooden stake and then light them on fire, okay? And that's the way that they would light their roads. That would be like the mile markers along the road. And you do that because you want to send a message. You send a message. You follow this Jesus. This is how you are going to end up being. So does it surprise any of you in this room that some people left the faith? Do you think maybe hmm, some people are getting killed at church? I might not go to this church, period, okay? And that's exactly what's happening in John's time. In those 60 years, a lot of bad stuff has happened, and people are leaving the church, and they're asking themselves a very important question. Is Jesus the real deal or not? I need to know. I need to know if, G- if Jesus is the real deal. Somebody else who, who, who did this, we're not time to turn there, is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is the one who's like, there's Jesus, he's the Messiah, right? He's the forerunner, he's the one that rolls out the red carpet for Jesus. And yet, John the Baptist, he's in prison, he's about to get his head chopped off, and he's asking the disciples the very same question. He goes, I need to know, was I right about Jesus or not? I'm coming to the end, I'm about to die for my faith. And when you're gonna die for something, don't you want to know if it's true? You better believe you want to, you want to know if it's true. Now, I, I always ask this question to the youth group, and it's an awesome question. And maybe I'll pop quiz faith. But faith, why, why are you a Christian? Because it's true. Can you hear the, the answer? Okay. Why are you a Christian? Okay, you cannot answer that question by saying, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. Right? Isn't that weak? Right? Do you say, I'm a Christian because I had some warm, fuzzy feeling inside? Like, can't any religion make that claim? So that's why I always tell the youth group, look, you're a Christian, okay, and you're either a Christian because you believe it's true or, or it's not. But at the end of the day, that's where we need to stand is, if it's true. And that's why John shows up. He writes this letter, and all he means to do in this letter is tell you that Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the real deal, and having a relationship with him, you can have confidence in that. You can be 100% assured that your relationship with Christ is real, and it's worth dying for. Okay? And John, he will preach this, and preach this, and preach this, and they can't kill him. They tried boiling him in oil, and they still couldn't shut John up. It took exiling him to the island of Patmos, okay, which is basically Alcatraz, okay, just to put him away and shut him up. But he will continue to preach that Jesus is the real deal, and you'll see that here in in the letter. Now, one last question before we open up the scriptures is a very important question, and that's, why should you believe John? Why should you believe John? Seriously, this makes or breaks the entire letter for you. You cannot read this letter, and if you believe that, that John is not a credible source, then you're going to read this letter, and you're not going to think much of it. But if I show you, if I show you how credible John is, how important his words are, you might look at this letter very, very differently. So why John? Let me, sh- let me just prove it to you. One, 
John is part of the 12 disciples, okay? Jesus had more than 12 disciples, okay? We know from like Luke 10, he sends out a team of 72, okay? So you know at least he has 72 disciples. Well, John makes top 12. That's a pretty big deal, top 12 out of 72. So he's there, right, to see Jesus feed 5,000 people out of a little kid's lunchbox. He's there to see Jesus water ski without any skis. I mean, he sees the most incredible miracles. So not only is John top 12, John's also top three, okay? Jesus has what's called the inner three, okay? Those were Peter, James, and John, okay? Only these three exclusively got to see Jairus' daughter raised from dead to life, okay? The first resurrection miracle. Only those three get to see it. It's only those three who get to go on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus just opens a faucet on his glory, He completely transfigures. He lets loose his glory. And it's only these three men who get to witness that. It's these same three men who get to be closest to Jesus as he's sweating blood and crying just before his arrest and crucifixion. Okay? He is top three. Now, in the Gospels, John is never mentioned as John. Oftentimes, he gets this one special title, the the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he's called in the story. Not John, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, it's Jesus. Jesus loves all his disciples. But why this particular title? It's like saying, like, it's like Jesus saying, he's my best friend. Right? You all have good friends. You all have, all have friends. You love your, but you have a best friend. John's like Jesus' best friend. Now, one of the ways he kind of proves that to you is there's a moment, there's a scene on the crucifixion. Okay? Jesus is on the verge of dying. These are the final minutes of Jesus's life, okay? And he's needing to tie up loose ends. One of those things is, who is going to take care of my mom? Who is going to take care of Jesus's mom? So the scene, Jesus looks down at Mary, and who's next to Mary? His best friend, John. And he looks to John, and he goes, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And what is he doing in that moment? He's entrusting his own mom to John. Can you imagine? Like, Jesus must really trust you if he's going to trust his mom to you. Okay, that is John. Now, if you wanted to get to know a person without actually talking to that person, if you wanted to get to know a person, who could you talk to to get to know that person? probably that person's best friend, okay? Which for me, okay, but which now is Francis, okay? She's my best friend. If you want to know something about me, Francis. But before Francis, okay, my best friend, his his name's John Yim. It's uh, Josh Yim's older brother. And I swear, you could talk to John, you can even talk to Josh, okay? And they can tell you almost nearly everything about me. If you want to know the details about a person, all you have to do is, Talk to their best friend. And guys, that's how we approach First John. Okay, I know it's a long intro, but do you see why this is such an important book? We are reading the words of Jesus' best friend. I don't think there's anyone in Scripture more credible. No one in Scripture has more or better credentials than John when it comes to knowing about Jesus. So please, take the time, read this letter. And for the next 12 weeks, we're going to learn from Jesus' best friend about Jesus.
So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. It's going to be one of the last books of the New Testament, but we will have the verses up on the screen for you. And we're just going to start with the uh, first verse. And it reads this way. That which was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, so what John does here at the beginning is he says, from the beginning. Now, this is a trademark John. This looks familiar. That's because it comes from the gospel of John. Okay, you can flip back a little bit to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And how does he start his gospel of John? He goes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how he starts the gospel of John. And he does the very same thing here in 1 John, in the beginning. Now, the thing I want you to pay attention to is there's a series of four verbs, very, very cool verbs. He uses heard, seen, looked at, and touched. Okay, so let me just walk you through this real quickly. Heard, okay? He heard Jesus. Like, he was with Jesus. He heard every single sermon that Jesus ever preached. He heard every compassionate, merciful, kind word Jesus ever said. John was there to hear it. Now, back in the Old Testament, in Old Testament, all God had to do was speak. Like, there are some great men and women in the Old Testament that did incredible things simply because they heard God. For example, Noah, all he did was hear God's voice. And that was enough for Noah to build a giant boat. That was enough to convince Noah that he had to build this giant boat to save the humanity of the entire earth. Okay? It used to be good enough to just hear God. But now we kind of live in a world where, you know, just to hear isn't good enough, you know? So that's why he gives you the second one. Not only did I hear Jesus, okay, I saw Jesus. Now, when you see things, you automatically become what's called an eyewitness. And you care very much about eyewitnesses. If you're involved in a car accident, how important is it to have eyewitnesses? It's very, very important. And he will stress this one verb, which is see. Okay, I saw. And you'll notice here, he, he repeats see three times in the first three verses here. You'll see it here in verse one, verse two, verse three. So he emphasizes it. So for you as the audience, this is what you're going to hear. I saw, I saw, I saw. Did he see? He, yes, I saw, I saw, I saw. He was there, he saw. Now, to hear and see, that's awesome. That is pretty convincing, but even if that's not good enough, he gives you two, which I feel are even more compelling verbs, okay? And that's looked at and touched, okay? Now, this is one of the few times I think it's important to actually look at the original language, at the original Greek, okay? Because those two verbs... Yes, it means looked at and touched, but what it really translates into is looked at intently and examine intelligently. That's what it turns into. Look at, look at intently and examine intelligently. That's what those verbs translate into. Okay? Now, these verbs are also event-dependent. They point to a specific event. So, what was it? When was it this time that they examined Jesus up close and personal? And this would be after the resurrection. 
after the resurrection. So if anyone is familiar with a person, he gets this title, and he's called Doubting Thomas. Okay? Doubting Thomas. Now, there's a scene after the resurrection, and uh, like the disciples come along, and they tell Thomas, hey, we saw Jesus. Like, he's alive again. He rose from the dead. And Thomas, he's like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Not until I have concrete evidence not until I can actually examine him closely. He says touched. It's the same verb. Until I examine Jesus closely and I get concrete evidence, I will never believe. Now, you can go ahead and put the next verse up, Susan. Jesus is not afraid to be tested. He shows up to Thomas, and this is what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. And look here, touch me, examine me closely and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Okay? You can press Jesus. You can press him hard and you can test him hard. And do you think Jesus is afraid of being tested? Do you think Jesus is afraid to be examined closely? Absolutely not. He rises up to the challenge and he says, I'm not afraid, come. Come, look at me, touch me, do whatever you need to do in order to be convinced that I am real. He is not afraid. Now, some of you in the audience, okay, you might be able to relate to this. For some of you, like, you know what? I was not a Christian and I wasn't thinking ever about ever becoming a Christian until I got some really good answers to some of my questions, okay? So there's this kind of uh, two categories, if you will, of people who don't become Christians for two general reasons. One is intellectual doubts, and the other ones are emotional doubts. So Thomas, he's one of the intellectual doubts. So for people in that camp, you would ask questions like, um, what is the evidence for God's existence? How can you tell me that we have the right books of the Bible if they were copied over 2,000 years? Okay. How can we say that the Bible is the word of God when it was written by people? How can we say Christianity is true and then all these other religions aren't true? How do you know that? Okay, those are very reasonable questions, aren't they? Aren't, those are very intelligent questions. And the great thing is that there are evidence and there's answers to these questions. Like there's so much content out there now on the, on the internet, okay? You can actually Google search stuff like that. Like what is evidence for God? You can Google search this stuff. If you really want to know the answers to your, in, your intellectual, intellectual doubts, you can look it up. Evidence, there's so much evidence out there. And Jesus is saying, come, come, touch me, see. Look for the evidence, get answers to your questions. If you have intellectual doubts, you will find them if you look for them. But did you know, most of the time, and this has just been my experience in evangelism, most of the time, people do not have intellectual doubts. Most of the time, people don't come to Jesus because of emotional doubt. So, the, you know, the questions that they ask, they ask some pretty hard-hitting questions. They ask questions like, you know, my grandmother, she died, and she didn't know Jesus. So why should God send her to hell forever and ever? You know, they'll ask questions like, well, I mean, if God is good, why does he allow my daughter to get cancer? Okay, those are different questions than what's the evidence for God's existence. See, for people who struggle with emotional doubts, they're not questioning the truthfulness of the evidence. 
they're questioning how do they feel about the evidence. And a lot of times, they like to hide behind intellectual questions. They like to say, oh, you know, I, I, don't, I can't trust the Bible because uh, it's written by people. And it's like, well, I could spend all day giving you evidence for how it's God's word, why we have the right books. I can show you tons and tons of evidence, but they will never believe the evidence. You see, they will never believe the evidence because they already have a feeling about the evidence. And that's, I can't trust the God who would send my grandma to hell. I can't trust the God who's not going to keep my son or daughter in perfect health. So what happens is, that's where I think the church comes in. Church, we are Jesus' hands and feet. We are called the body of Christ. And it's those people who are suffering. They're going through pain and ache and heartbreak. And that's where you and I show up and we show them God's love. Okay? They're not in a position, they're not in a place to understand God's love because they need to first feel God's love. If they feel God's love, then they're in a position to understand it. Now, people who are intellectual doubts, yeah, they need to understand God's love before they can experience God's love. But if you're emotional doubt, you need to experience God's love before you can understand God's love. That's what John's here. He's saying, I heard, I saw, I examined closely. He is the real deal. John's saying, I was there to touch Jesus he is very much alive and he is very much real. I have a relationship with him and I want you to have a relationship with him. Let's go on to the second verse. And he says, and the life was manifested and we have seen, there it is again, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Okay, so this Verb that gets repeated there twice is this verb manifested, which means to make appearance or apparent, okay, to reveal oneself. Okay, and John, he does this uh, in his Gospel of John. Okay, he uh, will refer to Jesus a lot as the Word. Okay, he called the Word of Life, but the Word in the Greek is called the Logos. Uh, so let's go ahead and just show them that uh, next uh, in, yeah, in John chapter one. Okay, and the Word. Okay, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. In this part of 1 John, okay, what John is trying to tell you is, this is the Logos. Like, he's not just Jesus the man. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who has always been with God. Like, from eternity past, there's never not been a time where Jesus was not with the Father, okay? He is from the beginning, the very beginning, okay, before Adam and Eve. He has always been with the Father, and then comes a time where he steps into human history. So we call that the eternal steps into the temporal, okay? That the eternal God takes on a human body, okay, and comes to live on earth. We call this the incarnation, Okay, this is the reason why Christmas is such a big deal and such a big holiday because it's the time where Jesus would come or God would come and become Emmanuel. And Emmanuel translates into literally with us, God. It is God with us. So Jesus manifested himself and John was there to hear it, see it, feel it, touch it, examine it closely. 
<clears throat> and all it means to tell you is that Jesus is fully God. That is important theology. Important theology. Is Jesus 100% man? Yes. And is he 100% God? Yes. To say that Jesus is fully God, do you know that that's what sets Christianity apart from any other religion in the world? Any other religion in the world. Okay? Even Judaism. Judaism doesn't even say that he's God, nor is he the son of God. He was just a, a good teacher who was a good miracle worker, and he got himself killed by Rome. Okay? Muslims, they don't believe that he's the son of God or God. They just say that he's one of the five great prophets. Um, Hinduism, they say Jesus is just a manifestation of one of the many gods, but he's not the God. And then Buddhists, they just say he was a holy man. He was just an enlightened man. But nobody says Jesus is God. Jesus is the only one who makes that claim. There is no other religious leader, and you can look, no other religious leader or founder of a religion ever is bold enough to make this claim. Only Jesus says, I am God, the only God. And we know that the disciples were convinced of this because they saw him, they looked at him, they touched him, and then they died for it. Okay? If this were not true, if this were a lie, does it make any sense for them to die for it? Who do you know in their right mind, who do you know dies for a lie? Nobody dies for a lie. And all these men, these 10 apostles, they would go on to do that. So Jesus is fully God. Now I want to point your attention to just two more verbs here in this uh, verse here. And that would be the verbs proclaim, proclaim, and testify. Now, proclaim and testify, these are very important words because I don't know if you know this or not, those both require what's called an authority. An authority, but they have two different types of authority. Now, proclaim, that's what's, what's called derived authority, okay? In order for you to proclaim something, you would have to have first received the message from someone else. Like someone commissioned you, okay, to deliver a message. So if, if you've ever been like, hey, honey, can you call the kids for dinner, okay? She has been commissioned to give a proclamation to proclaim what? To proclaim that dinner is ready to the kids. Okay, anytime you give an announcement, okay, you're making a proclamation, but you have to understand how are you able to make that proclamation is because someone commissioned you to do that. Okay? Now, testify is a different authority. Do you realize that in order for, uh, to give a testimony, you had to have been there? You had to have been there. If you were not there, then you can't be a witness. You can't, be a test can't give a testimony. So can you imagine, for a second, you're in court, and someone is testifying against you. And they're saying, oh, well, you know, jury, um, Brian's neighbor's cousin's uncle's friend told me that you were guilty. Okay. Does that fly in court? Absolutely not. It wouldn't. That person cannot testify because they were not there. That is so bogus. You would have to track down Brian's uncle's neighbor's friends, whatever, that person, because they were there. So my question to you is, who do you know that has both these authorities? Who do you know was both commissioned by Jesus to give a proclamation and yet was there to see and touch and feel Jesus? Who fits that category? John. 
John is saying, I can make this proclamation. I can be this eyewitness. Okay? I can sit up on the witness stand. I can sit in that chair, and I can confidently be the one there to tell you, I have the credentials. I have the authority to tell you Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he's still alive today. And you can have a real relationship with him. And that's exactly where he's going to take us next. So we'll go ahead and go to the last two verses for today. What's God's agenda? What's, uh, what's uh, John's agenda? What's his purpose? Because we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Okay, when you write a letter, sometimes you put a subject line, like what's this letter about or why am I writing? The purpose of this letter is blah, blah, blah. This is the purpose of this letter is blah, blah, blah. John is saying, I am writing this letter because I want you to have fellowship with us. Okay, another word for fellowship is relationship. Okay, is relationship. John says, I'm writing this letter because I want you to have a relationship with me. And then he takes it a step further. He goes, I want you to have a relationship with us because our relationship is with who? Is with God. Okay? And that is a huge, huge deal because it's not just talking about the horizontal relationship, but it's also about the vertical relationship. Do you understand what kind of church we need to be? Are we the kind of church that, that we should just only care about the horizontal? Like we would say we write this letter so that you'd have fellowship with us and totally ignore having a relationship with God? It's not the kind of church, I don't think that's what God wants the church to be at all. I think what he wants us to be is like a piano. It's like a piano. Now what happens when all the piano keys are tuned to the same key? There's harmony. When all these individual keys are tuned to the same key, don't the rest of the keys play well together? Yeah, I think they do. It's what, the way a piano works. Guys, I think that's the way human relationships work. I think that the, the, the harmony can exist between husband and wife. I think the harmony can exist between parent and child. I think the harmony can exist with roommates, okay, with siblings, with friends at school. If we are all tuned to the same key, then we play well together. Yes, pun intended. And that's what John wants. He wants that for you and for me. I think John, he shares the exact same heart as God the Father. Some of us, we may not want to have John as your, as your preacher because he is a literally, he's a one-sermon preacher guy. If you read the Gospel of John, if you, when we read the, the letters of First John, if you, even the Revelation, you see that he only has one sermon, but it's the best one. He's all about love one another. Love one another. In fact, he'll repeat love one another five times just in First John alone. Five times in five chapters, he will repeat love one another. In fact, the word that he uses probably more than any other word is, is God, know, and love. Those are the most repeated words in, in the letter of 1 John. Know God, love. He, what, is, what does he want you to know? He wants you to know God's love. He's a one-sermon guy. 
He just wants, I want you to know God's love. I want you all to be tuned to the same key so we all play together. And I want you to love one another. So I'm going to close us and, and the worship band can start coming up. But I'm so excited to go through the book of 1 John. I taught the book of 1 John probably two years ago to the youth group. We were at uh, the senior center at that time. And two years ago, I didn't see this as the words of John's best friend. I didn't catch it two years ago. This is something that I'm just kind of catching right now. And I think that we need to take John's words so, so seriously and so important. Like, I know, I know all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of this is God's word, but what an opportunity to hear about Jesus from the words of his best friend. So when we go through this the next 12 weeks, as you read this letter on your own, put yourself in the right mindset. These are the words of Jesus' best friend. And all he wants you to know is, I want you to know God's love. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you would pick John, that John would show up and he would write five books in the New Testament. Lord, with the same sermon, <laughs> Lord, that it's God's love, God's love. And you want us to know what it is, the love of God, what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. Lord, so many of us were guilty of not playing well together. Maybe some of us are off tune. We're not in tune with the right key. Or maybe we need to come back to the right key. Please heal us of our intellectual doubts and heal us of our emotional doubts. We love that, Jesus, you are not afraid and you're not scared to be touched, to be examined. There's evidence so much that if we seek the truth, we will find it. Finally, Lord, I pray over my church family that we would actually live out what John writes here, to love one another, to love one another. And the world will know that we are Christians if we love one another. This is my prayer in Jesus.